to this week's edition of Stephen and Company here on the Stephen Perkins Program, a show which can only be found on the Outset Podcast Network. I know I just give you a lot of names right there, but did you know that you can find all of our Outset Podcasts in one convenient location? Probably not because I've never mentioned it before this week, but you can just go to outsetmagazine.com slash podcast. That's with an S podcast, like multiple podcasts. Or if you're on iTunes, search Outset and find this show, Second Look with Benjamin Green and The Matt Dallas Show all on the same page, super convenient. And while you're there, give them a like or you don't like on iTunes. What am I saying? Give them a subscription. And then if you like the show, rate and leave a comment because here's the thing when you rate a show and leave a comment on itunes that lets the itunes gods i'm guessing there's such a thing i don't know it lets them know that hey people are liking this show maybe we should feature it i don't know maybe if we're lucky it'll happen before i get into this week's episode i want to give some love to our sponsor this week octopods line of portable charging devices will make sure that your phone never has to go dead again and for me that is like a godsend and for you the listeners of this week's show if you go to octo-pod.com outset and enter the promo code OUTSET, O-U-T-S-E-T, at checkout, you will get 50% off. That's right. Go to octo-pod.com slash OUTSET, enter the promo code OUTSET, O-U-T-S-E-T, and get 50% off your order. Now, on this week's episode, I'm talking with Blake Humphrey. Blake is, the uh, best way to describe him, just a really smart guy. And I love hearing him talk about the issues that affect all of us as young people. Blake is a contributor at Outset, a student at West Virginia University, and an SGA governor at his school as well. I hope you enjoy listening to Blake as much as I did. Now let's get into the conversation. I'm here with Blake Humphrey this week. He is an Outset contributor, political science student at West Virginia University, and a governor in the West Virginia University SGA. Blake, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me on. Definitely. Other than the basic intro I just gave, I know that you're involved in a lot of different things. Just explain to the listeners, uh, I guess, who you are, what you do, and how you became involved with all of the things that you are involved in. Well, my name is Blake Humphrey. As you said, I am a political science and economics major at West Virginia University, currently going into my second year. This past spring, I was elected to serve on the WVU Student Government Association Board of Governors, focusing around uh, college and textbook affordability. So those are my main involvements on campus. But outside of that, politically, I actually got involved with politics back in 2006 with a local race for magistrate in my county here in West Virginia. And since then, uh, my love for politics has just expanded. Um, I've helped out at the local, state, and federal level with campaigns. And one thing I've learned about politics is the more you do uh, campaigns, the more you want to be involved. So I've uh, since served as a congressional intern for Congressman David McKinley out of the 1st District of West Virginia. And this past summer, I was also back on the Hill with Senator Capito. So what is it in 2006? What was it that, that drew you to politics and what keeps you involved in it? Well, back in 2006, uh, I had a teacher that I had had in third grade whose husband was running for magistrate. And I remember at the time, uh, John approached me about working on his campaign. And I was inv- I, I was interested in politics. My grandfather, uh, for the longest time, was... Uh, very high up with Congressman Alan Mollahan and his father, Congressman Bob Mollahan, here in West Virginia. And uh, John came to me and he said, you know, would you like to work on the campaign? And John was a Democrat. Uh, since then, I've kind of changed my political Uh-oh. views. Uh, but, you know, my grandfather had, was a Democrat, too. And my grandfather told me, get involved. Um, but I remember at the time he also told me, once you do get involved, you won't stop. 
uh, and, and it couldn't be more true. What really keeps me going, though, are, are seeing the results. Uh, helping people get elected is one thing, but once people are elected, it's what they do, and it's how we as, as, as campaign uh, advisors and, uh, and volunteers uh, react after the campaign. It's about staying involved. It's about working with them on different issues, and, and that's what's really kept me engaged in politics. So let's talk about uh, one of the issues that, that I know that you're really involved with and really interested in um, and, and seeing getting fixed, and that is the issue of college affordability. And you and I both know being in college and, and communicating with, uh, with our classmates all the time, we know that college is extremely expensive across the country. That's the case. Tuition continues to go up. Um, and it, it seems as if st- more and more students every year are going into this, what I think is a, is a death trap of student loans and, and, and all these federal loans. And so I guess just start off with the question of, and it's kind of a broad question, but in terms of making college more affordable, how exactly do you think is the best way to do that? Well, first I'd like to start off by saying the issue of college affordability really came to my attention back when I decided to run for the Board of Governors. And at the time, I was looking for an issue that I really wanted to engage on. And um, it, it came up that I, I was reading an article online on the New York Times about, about the cost of college. And all of the metrics and all of the numbers and all of the data adds up to show that over the past 50 years, empirically, the cost of college has risen. Um, there's no denying uh, that universities have found a captive market in college students. There's no denying that at the same time, we as a society continue to promote college as being one of the best uh, ways and pathways towards success in achieving the American dream. So what you really have are students who want to go to college, universities who know that they have a captive market, and then, of course, the federal government and other loan providers come in in which they're guaranteeing these loans. And ultimately what's happened is universities have continued to, to raise costs and raise tuition, and the, uh, the creditors have continued to lend out money. So it's created a vicious cycle in which the student is stuck in the middle. Uh, but more specifically on, on the university level, here at West Virginia University, I, I'm pleased to say that, that we are one of the most affordable four-year public institutions in the country. But as I always tell administrators here at the university, we've also got to look at the market we're serving, and that's the state of West Virginia, which is 49th in family household income and, and, and ranks as one of the poorest states in the nation. So that's, that's also something to take into consideration. But across the country, especially at private institutions and public institutions, the cost has continued to go up. So as students, my, my whole question that I've been proposing across the country, not only here on my campus, but at other campuses across the country, is what do we do? What is, what is our part? What is our stake in this conversation? And ultimately, the game of higher education revolves around one thing, and that's providing students with a quality education. If we're saying that we're receiving a quality education, that's one thing, but it's also taking into consideration the cost of that college education. Do the costs outweigh the benefits? And a lot of the times you'll hear students talk about how, for them, the benefit does outweigh the cost. But in some circumstances, and this is what we find a lot of the times uh, when we're dealing with middle class to low-income families, that cost of taking out that student loan, of, of getting a work study, of working 40 hours a week in addition to the course credit hours that you're taking in college, those costs outweigh the benefits in those cases. So it's all about trying to strike that balance and trying to find a way to make it so that students... Uh, have a more reliable cost. They know how much they're paying. And also going back and, and, and trying to make reforms to the federal system. Right. And, and in what way could a student have uh, a voice on their campus? And, and in what way can they become an activist for more affordable uh, colleges? 
Well, one thing I will say on this issue that is so critically important, and it's something that I've begun to, to work on more here in, in the past few months, is focusing on financial literacy and wellness. That's one key component that a lot of the times we, we neglect to talk about when having this discussion about college affordability. We talk about lowering tuition. We talk about implementing four-year fixed tuition strategies or raising the amount of scholarship or, or this, that, and the other. That's all fine. But one of the key elements to this is actually talking about financial literacy and wellness. And that's the student's responsibility. Of course, the university needs to provide those resources, but it's the students, we the students, who need to take those resources and run with them. So whether that means using budget calculators, whether that means spending your money in a wiser manner, whether that means going out and finding you know, the best bang for your buck when it comes to buying textbooks or purchasing uh, you know, room and board or a meal plan or different things like that, it's about making sure that we as students have the tools and know uh, what financial literacy and wellness is. I, I talk to students all across campus, Stephen, and the one thing I hear a lot of the times is, is you know, what's financial literacy and wellness? You know, what, what, how do I balance my checkbook? Right. You know, how, how do I apply for federal grants? How do I, how, oh, I, I didn't need to apply for that federal grant. You hear this all the time. Um, so financial literacy and wellness is key, and as students, we can all take an individual responsibility on that level. On more of an activist level within campuses and, and colleges across the country, one thing I recommend doing is the students, first of all, join your student government association. That's a great way to get involved. That's a great way to start conversations with students as well as administrators on your campus about, about the issue. But, but you can also link up with a number of national organizations that are really focusing on college affordability issues. The Public Interest Research Group out of Washington, D.C. is one. Open Cons another. The Right to Research is a great organization as well. And all across the country on campuses, there are individual organizations that are focusing on advocating for affordability. So, you know, not only can you get involved at an individual level of taking your financial wellness and literacy into your own hands, but also on the campus level of engaging and, and bringing awareness to these issues and letting other students know uh, that tuition is going up, that we're going to continue to pay for it unless we find alternative solutions we're going to continue to, to bear the brunt of those costs. Now, when you talk about students um, needing to have more financial literacy, I mean, how does that not, how is that not something that is, I would imagine, already should be in the high school curriculum? I know my high school didn't have financial literacy classes, but they sure, they sure should. Um, but for students who, like you said, have no idea what that is, how do you send that message to them? Well, I, I agree with you 100%. I think it's about starting that conversation early and having it often. And when we talk about financial literacy courses in high school, one of the most frustrating things for me is I, I was in the same exact boat. Uh, luckily, my mother, who is a finance graduate at WVU, she taught me a lot. But there are a lot of other students out there and a lot of my peers who, who, who don't know and don't have those tips and tools readily available. So, so you're right. You're exactly right. It's about starting that conversation in, co in high school that will lead into college, which will then lead you to the rest of your life. And, uh, you know, one thing we're trying to do here on campus at West Virginia is start that conversation that hasn't been started already in hopes that it'll spill down to the high school level. We're going to engage in outreach with our new students. We're going to continue to make sure that our students on campus have resources and have the ability to reach out to the university and, and, and find those tools to help them remain financially sound. Uh, so so I, I agree. Uh, it's about encouraging state lawmakers at the state level to, to implement mandatory courses pertaining to financial literacy and wellness at the high school level. But it's also about making sure that at the universities, we continue those conversations. Uh, we're taking a different approach, but, but it's also an approach that we believe will be uh, instrumental and helpful in making that conversation pushed more towards the high school level as well, but also continuing at the college level. 
Now, you know that uh, that I'm not the biggest fan of the federal government, I'm <laughs> not the biggest fan of, of federal involvement in, in issues, especially on the local level. But in terms of government involvement on this issue, first, first question is, what kind of things have you seen states implement that has brought down cost? Well, uh, my, my two main focuses are college and textbook affordability. Right. So I, I've, I've looked at the textbook uh, thing uh, side of this with the states, and, and what I found is there's a growing movement out there, and I cannot plug it enough, uh, surrounding open source textbooks and open educational resources. Now, explain what that is real quick sure, for people. Don't sure, sure. Uh, open source textbooks and open educational resources are peer-reviewed, professor-written textbooks that serve as substitutes or addition, additional material for current course material. They're the big four publishing companies out there right now, and they truly do have a lock on the market. They're setting prices wherever they want. They're making huge profit margins, and it's all going back to the students. So what open source textbooks and open educational resources do is they circumvent the process by providing textbooks free of charge to students that professors can then utilize for their courses. A lot of the times at the state level, what we've seen are states shifting more towards open source textbooks and open educational resources. Uh, down there in Texas, uh, Senator Colcourse has done some great work on that. They're going to plan on moving that forward here in 2016. And up in Oregon, uh, it's already been passed and signed by the governor. It's an open source textbook, open educational resource grant program that's uh, housed through their higher education coordinating committee. So that's, that's one way that we can minimize one of the largest costs. Uh, you know, tuition and fees are, are all there, but one of the largest costs outside of that are textbooks. Right. And what we've seen is the cost of textbooks have risen by 800% in the past 20 years. Meanwhile, you know, uh, inflation has only gone up by 114%. So clearly there's a discrepancy when dealing with that. Uh, the open source textbook, open educational resource initiatives that are taking place around the country at the federal, state, and local level are all incredible because what they're doing is they're putting pressure on those publishing companies to realize that they're not the only provider of academic material. And if you think about it, you think about the mission of higher education, you think about what our library systems are supposed to do, is they're supposed to be resources for academic empowerment and knowledge. And really open source textbooks and open educational resources provide that. They give students, they give faculty, they give universities all a new means to achieve that academic end, which is providing a quality education to their students. And it's better than having students uh, illegally or, uh, you know, download a textbook or, uh, you know, things like that. But uh, in terms of federal involvement, what would you support? Or, or is there anything? I think that at the federal level, we've really created an interesting system when it comes to federal student loans, when it comes to the U.S. Department of Education, when it comes to to, to the different policies that are coming down at the federal level pertaining to universities. I, I, I preface it by saying, although I, I, I tend to be more moderate to write, there's one person who, who I, I, I agree with on, on the issue of college affordability, and that's Elizabeth Warren. Now, a lot of people say, Blake, you're crazy. There's, there's no way that you can agree with her on, on anything like that. But, but genuinely, Senator Warren has, has taken on the, the scandal that is student loans at the college level. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're talking about the federal government um, basically providing student loans, but at the same time what they're doing is they're increasing the rates on the student loans exponentially and students are trapped. Um, Senator Warren talks all the time about how we need to, to invest more in Pell Grants, uh, we need to simplify the financial aid application. FAFSA is a complete bundle of, of, of joy for, for some and it's a terror for others and I, I tend to be on that terror side. But, but at the same time, it goes back to the profits that we're, we're collecting on student loans. 
instead of having student loans be about the students, they're all strapped and saddled with these huge inflation rates that centers around reaping big profits for the government. So, so Senator Warren is advocating for changing those rules on the student loans so it works to increase affordability. Um, I also believe uh, that when we talk about the issue of student debt, there's also a big issue surrounding that. Student loan debt is almost surpassed credit card debt in the United States. It's a huge issue, and, and it's something that needs to be addressed uh, because of the fact that these student loans have been housed in the federal level for so long. Uh, currently, you know, I believe that the Department of Education needs to exercise its authority um, ensuring borrowers um, whose schools, there are schools across the country breaking the law on these issues, are able to discharge their debts. Um, th these are important issues. Right now, a student, uh, a borrower from the federal government can't even go through bankruptcy to discharge their student loan debts. Right. So, so these are important issues that although Senator Warren tends to be on the opposite side of the spectrum from where I'm at, I see as common sense policy goals that at the federal level need, need to take place in order to reform uh, higher education. And if not, we're going to continue to see student loan debt you know, continue to compile over a long period of time. And it's going to be devastating for our country when that bubble collapsed like it has for so many other markets out there. Right. And, and I think it's just unfortunate that college students being among some of the most vulnerable in society that there is this uh, there's all these predators out there trying to take advantage of uh, of the situation they're in a lot of people who you know like we've said can't afford and so they go towards these loans and it ends up messing up a large chunk of their life and if they can't get it under control almost all their life now when you talk with administrators at West Virginia University when you talk with state lawmakers and in your role as a governor for the student government association at your school what are some of the policies or plans that you have proposed that you've been supporting that you think could really um, take a crack at college affordability? Sure. So like I said, my, my two-part platform that I ran on was college and textbook affordability. I'll go after the textbooks first. Here on campus, we've made an ardent stride and push towards advancing towards open source textbooks, and we've achieved on many fronts with that issue. Currently, right now, we have started an open source textbook consortium here at the university that is going to be focusing on establishing programs aimed at helping students lower the cost of their textbooks. At the same time, as a member of the board, I've also encouraged students at the university to go out and find the best prices for their textbooks. That's not only buying used textbooks, using online textbooks, but also when it comes to selling back their textbooks. Uh, I, I encourage students to use whatever tools available. CampusWise is a great example, Packback, Chegg. There are a number of programs and, and, and businesses out there that provide services to students in a, when it comes to trying to find the best price for your textbook. On the college affordability side of things, the one thing that I've really taken interest in during my time on the board is trying to make sure that we have a strong financial literacy and wellness program here at the university. Back in June, I had the opportunity to travel out to Bloomington uh, to Indiana University and attend a conference centered around financial literacy and wellness. And Stephen, it's tremendous to see the progress that has been made. Um, two of the universities that come to mind right now are Indiana University and Ohio University, uh, Ohio State University, I'm sorry, which have both taken significant steps in having peer mentors when it comes to financial literacy and wellness, developing programs that include cost, um, that also include expenditures and also include student aid uh, loans and grants and scholarships and things like that to, to package it all together and really focus on four-year financial and academic advising programs. So that, that's my one thing. That's going back to the student taking an individual responsibility to make sure that their finances are sound and, and they have the resources and tools necessary as provided by the university. 
Another thing that I've really been focusing on and I'm trying to engage with at the state level is renewing our investment in higher education. In the last 25 years alone, the average state funding per student for higher education has dropped by 24%. And, and guess who that makes to leave up the difference? It leaves families and the universities to make up the difference for that cost. So I believe that at the state level, we must renew our focus on higher education. And, and really, that will provide relief from high borrowing costs the students are already engaging with at the federal and private lending levels. So what does this mean, you know, putting more money back into education? That's, that's a great buzzword. But really what we need to do is we need to end our state of disinvestment in higher education. So we need to, to reduce um, the amount of cuts that happen towards higher education. We need to implement, uh, I believe, state and federal partnerships to support public higher education. Um, although I do believe that the, the federal government has a limited role at the federal level, I do believe that the federal level is also a great way to utilize all of the good ideas that are taking place around the country. If Washington, D.C. is good for one thing, it's good for spreading new ideas. Because I go to Washington and I talk to different people and I hear about different ideas that are taking place across the country. I found a great bill out of Oregon for open source textbooks because I was in D.C. talking with someone who was working with them. So it's all about trying to find those partnerships and, and try to find those different ways to support uh, higher education. And ultimately, you know, one thing I, I'm pushing for at the federal level is refinancing the student loans. But this can also be done at, at the state level. Um, there's one program in particular, it's out of North Dakota, the Republican governor up there, he refinanced more than $125 million in loans so far. Wow. And that provided a break to nearly 3,000 borrowers in just eight months. Mm -hmm. So these are things that can be done at the state level. It's not a Democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's, it's, it's a common sense issue. It's about higher education. It's about providing that education for our students that have really been helpful in going a long way in, in trying to make college more affordable. I mean, you talk about states cutting uh, the budgets for education. I've been seeing this across the country. Louisiana is putting LSU in danger with some of their cuts. Luckily, Texas, we've been able to increase the funding. Um, my school has gotten just a bunch of new funding for, for some of its programs. But one of the things that, uh, you know, you talk about agreeing with Senator Warren, I agree with uh, Senator Bernie Sanders when he talked about recently the fact that uh, the latest budget increased the Department of Defense spending by, I think it was like 25 or 28 percent. And uh, and those are resources that we could be putting into education. And I, I think it's really about um, reprioritize, reprioritizing our spending and making sure that, that, uh, that we're putting the money where it should be. Now, when we have people like President Obama and I presume Bernie Sanders coming out and saying, for example, they're latest proposal for free community college, right? You maintain that 2.5 GPA, you take a full-time load, and it's essentially, quote-unquote, free. What are your thoughts on programs like that? My honest opinion about that is I, I think it goes back to reprioritizing. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I just want to point out one thing, and then I'll, then I'll address that. Here in the state of West Virginia, there was a study that was done that said if we changed our, our tax system, if we reformed our tax system, there would be savings of up to $285 million that then we could invest back into our public education system, which would make higher education essentially affordable right. and, and, and free for almost every single student in the state of West Virginia. I personally believe that the government does have a role in, in trying to find different ways and different means of funding. Luckily, you, out in t you guys in Texas have, have benefited from that. But I also believe that at the same time, Senator Sanders and, and President Obama m might take it a little too far, in my mm -hmm. personal opinion. 
Um, I, I don't I don't disagree with you know adding more funding for higher education, but what I do believe is that as students we need to have a, a, some skin in the game, and and we need to make an investment in our education. Um, one thing that I believe happens a lot of the times whenever you provide free services like that, you know, it, it's a benefit to a lot of people. But at the same time, what you see are people becoming complacent with the fact that they don't have any skin in the game. Um, you know, they're spending uh, nothing to go to college, and, and if they drop out, it's not on their dime, it's on right. the government's dime. So what I believe is, is, yes, we need to reprioritize funding. We need to always be trying to find ways to increase funding for higher education at the state level and at the federal level. But at the same time, we also need to make sure that students have some sort of skin in the game. And if that means, you know, a, a minimal investment in your tuition, or if that means, you know, paying for, for one service or another fee, then that's what we do. Um, but, but, but saying that we're going to provide free college and, and, and free higher education at public universities and institutions and at community college, um, you know, that's something that, that I'm not opposed to. I, I mean, I, I want to look at all of the options, but at the same time, personally, from where I, I'm coming, I, I believe that students need to have some sort of investment and some sort of skin in the game. So, so I, I, I'm not completely opposed to, to Senator Sanders' uh, idea for free college at the public institutions or President Obama's uh, free two years of community college. But at the same time, I think we need to find a way to make it so that students have, have, have a stake in it and they feel as if they're investing in their own education. Because I believe at the individual level, making an investment in yourself is one of the best investments that you can make. I agree. They're, 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 the level of, of personal responsibility, I think, has to go up. And uh, like you said, whenever you actually um, own a part of your education, it, it certainly increases the drive to do better and, and make it uh, all that it's worth. Now, shifting gears a bit. On the subject of Bernie Sanders, <laughs> you know that, that there seems to be a really uh, good possibility that he may do some some weird things within the next year within the Democratic Party. He's going up against Hillary Clinton. A lot of Democrats, at least from the things that I've heard, they feel trapped with Hillary. They, they love this alternative idea of Bernie Sanders. He attracted record crowds. Um, his fundraising, I don't think, is as hot as hers, but that's what happens when you don't let in the big donors. In terms of a Hillary versus Bernie um, primary season, what are your thoughts on that? I believe that any discussion that's had in a primary, whether it be Republican or Democratic, needs to be one that includes all ideas. Um, th the one thing I will say is that, that, that Bernie has a problem when it comes to expanding his base. Hmm. You, you look at the polling numbers, you see that he's, he's at about 17, 18, up to 25% in some polls right. on the national polling uh, scale. And, and, and I see a lot of people encouraged by that, and there's no reason for them not to be. But one thing I, I always say is that that's about it for Bernie Sanders. The 20% that he's polling in the Democratic primary is about it. I do believe that at this point, Hillary Clinton is the dominant frontrunner, but I also believe that for the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders definitely brings a different sort of conversation and a different set of ideas. And I think he really, I think what encouraged him to run the most was the fact that Elizabeth Warren decided not to run. Right. I believe that, that, that Bernie knew that the Democratic Party needed the progressive ideas and, and those philosophies in the conversation surrounding um, you know, the Clinton campaign. One thing I also point out that, that, that a lot of people have discredited is the campaign of Martin O'Malley out of Maryland. I genuinely do believe that, that he's not gaining as much attention and, and credit as he deserves. 
Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, has sucked up a lot of the media attention because of the fact that he is so progressive. He is so out there on these issues, and, and he makes you know clear that he's not in the pockets of corporations and big businesses. But Martin O'Malley, at the same time, is also running on that same progressive tint. So what I would say is, although it might seem like a, a Sanders-Clinton matchup, there's also some room and there's also some oxygen in the room for someone like Martin O'Malley to come in and, and pick up some steam. You know, you also got to look at the fact that fundraising is key when it comes to politics, um, especially looking at the presidential level. Uh, Hillary Clinton raised $45 million in the first quarter of 2016 and Bernie Sanders was at, what, $15 million? So there's, right. clearly, there's clearly a discrepancy in fundraising. The one thing I will say is don't count Bernie out because nearly 80% of the funds that he raised in, in 20, uh, 2016's first quarter uh, came from individual donors. Right. And, and that's something that, that definitely should not be discredited. It goes to show that the Sanders camp has created a grassroots movement and that they're trying to pose a serious incredible threat to the Clinton campaign. They're moving Clinton more to the left. They're exposing her or, or inadequacies as a candidate. And in the end, it might just work. I would call him uh, kind of the Ron Paul of, of the left, if you will. He, he pulls the party in the more extreme direction, if you want to refer to it that way. Um, and to steal a, a John McCain phrase, kind of a wacko bird. But, you know, it, ultimately, it, it does interesting things. You see Ron Paul ran in 2008, 2012, and now his son is running on a kind of a lighter message. And it worked for the Republicans somewhat. And so maybe this as, is the beginning as, of things. As I always say, um they said this back in 2008. I'll say it again. This is Hillary Clinton's race to lose, and, yeah. uh, and, and we'll see how she does. Yeah. Well, I'm here with Blake Humphrey, and we will be right back after this quick break. We'll talk about 2016, a Senate race to replace Harry Reid, and some other questions. We'll be right back. Hey, friends, it's Stephen. You probably heard me ranting and raving about octopods every week on this show, and you might be wondering why. Well, the reason is because I use them, I love them, and I believe that they are the best portable charging devices for your money, hands down. And because Octopod loves you, the listeners of the show, they want to give you 50% off your order. All you have to do is go to octo-pod.com outset and use the promo code OUTSET, O-U-T-S-E-T, at checkout for 50% off your choice of any of their portable charging devices. I recommend the Ion 3 power bank because it's small, it's portable, and it's priced perfectly, especially with that 50% off promo code. So go to octo-pod.com outset and use the promo code outset at checkout for 50% off your order. All right, I am back here with Blake Humphrey. Uh, just really smart guy, Blake. I don't know. I don't know if you've been told that. All well, right. I you know, my, my mom would tend to disagree, but I love her anyway. <laughs> That's harsh. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about, let, let's continue on this 2016 train. Going into 2016, there are, I think a lot of people forget about this because we think about the presidential race. That's the big thing that we focus on. Um, a lot of people are, of course, we're, we're expecting the Republicans to to keep control of, of Congress. But talking about the important Senate races coming up. What are your thoughts on the competition in Nevada to replace Harry Reid? Well, currently the composition of the United States Senate stands at 54-46. After right. the 2014 election, Mitch McConnell became the majority leader. And shortly thereafter, after Harry Reid's accident at his gym in Nevada, he announced that he wasn't going to be running for re-election. In 2010, a lot of people believed, including myself, believed that Sharon Angle was the person to take out Harry Reid. 
Uh, a lot of the polls leading up to that 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 election, that contest showed that that Angle was in a commanding position. However, after a few stumbles and some some comments that were distasteful, she fell out of grace with the Republican Party and ended up losing that race. Now that Harry Reid's retiring, there is a contest back in Nevada, and it's one of the most underrated Senate contests in the country because it truly could be one of the races that determines control of the United States Senate. Right. So shortly after Senator Reid retired. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, who was the state's attorney general, um, announced that she would be running for U.S. Senate. A lot of people at the time said, you know, it's simply uh, one person bestowing the crown onto the other because Cortez Masto is Harry Reid's handpicked selection for the United States Senate seat. Mm -hmm. So Cortez Masto announces that she's running, and then all eyes turn to the Republican Party. The first candidate that came to mind was the popular governor of Nevada, Brian Sandoval. Sandoval's move would trigger whatever, what, anything else that was going to happen in that race. So Sandoval announced that he was not going to be running. Uh, it was back in March, he said, uh, or back, actually back in June, that he said that he wasn't going to be running for U.S. Senate. And shortly thereafter, on July 6th, Joe Heck announced that he was going to be running for U.S. Senate out in Nevada. Now, Congressman Heck was first elected to the House of Representatives back in 2010 when he defeated Dinah Titus. Um, and, and, and that's when he really uh, got his rise to fame. He's a doctor. Uh, he's a conservative. Uh, he represents a district that tends uh, to be more even on the Cook Political Voter Index. So, so this is a man who's won competitive contests. And Nevada's Senate race in 2016 is going to be a competitive contest. So we look at the general election polling. If saying Heck and Cortez Masto are both the Democratic and Republican nominees, um, who's going to end up winning that contest? A Gravis marketing poll that was done on July 16th with a huge sample size, 1,276, and a plus or minus 3% margin of error, which is a, a tremendous poll. Mm -hmm. It went to show that Joe Heck has 49% of the vote compared to Cortez Masto's 35%. Wow. So that goes to show that an election that was only six years ago back in 2010 in which Reid beat Angle 50.3 to 44.6 could go in favor of the Republicans. That would be that the Senate Minority Leader's seat would then be a pickup for the Republicans, and that would increase the majority to 55, considering all things aside with other races. And that would make Nevada now have two Republican senators. Exactly. We would uh, not only have uh, Dean Heller, who's currently the junior senator from Nevada, but that would mean that Joe Heck would join uh, Senator Heller in the upper house. Right. Do you, do you know anything about the Arizona race? John McCain uh, is running for re-election. And now we have, uh, oh gosh, her name escapes, Kelly Ward, the state senator running against him. Have you heard anything about that race? I have. I've, I've been following Arizona uh, ever since 2010. The uh -huh. one thing that was interesting in 2010 was the fact that John McCain had a challenge. Uh, he had a primary challenge from former Congressman J.D. Hayworth. And at the time, a lot of Republicans believed that Hayworth and the, the Tea Party movement would be able to surpass John McCain. And, and one of the more recent uh, polls that was conducted had Hayworth down by about 10 points in that contest. Ultimately, McCain went on to win, and he defeated Rodney Glassman in the general election to, to become the senator from Arizona once more. However, this time around, there's a growing movement, and it, it comes from Kelly Ward's campaign, and Outset did a great piece on her campaign. It's coming from State Senator Kelly Ward, who just recently announced that she would be running for state sen or U.S. Senate against John McCain. Right. So, so the d dynamic in Arizona has has really shifted. 
it once went from a Republican stronghold back in, in the days of Barry Goldwater, but it's since changed, really. Arizona has become, um, a, a, as I say, a reddish-purple state. It's, it's moving more towards being a swing state, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there's still a bastion of conservatism, and there's a lot of, a lot of good conservatives and Republicans out there in Arizona. So Kelly Ward announces that she's going to be running against John McCain. What does that do? Well, it definitely puts John McCain in a difficult position because he is going to have a strong challenger, whoever the Democratic nominee might be. The only Democrat I believe in right now is Congressman Ann Kirkpatrick, who's uh, from uh, Arizona's first congressional district. And she could she could pose a, a very strong challenge to Senator McCain or, or State Senator Kelly Ward. So, so the Arizona contest is another one. Um, I'm personally going to go ahead and make the prediction that John McCain will win the primary and John McCain will win the general election. You think so? One, one thing I, I believe John McCain has is resiliency when it comes to fading off these, these primary challenges. Uh, he showed that back with uh, J.D. Hayworth in 2010 when all of the polls and all of the momentum showed J.D. winning that election against McCain in the primary and he defeated him and then he went on to defeat Rodney Glassman by over 20 points. McCain has a tremendous name recognition, tremendous name ID in Arizona and across the country. And that not only helps with his polling, but that also helps with his fundraising. Well, so I'm going to go ahead and make the call now. McCain wins re-election. Yeah, I was going to ask two things. I don't know how much you know about Kelly Ward, but how do you think she compares to J.D. Hayworth back in 2010? And also, there seems to be on the national Republican level, people are getting tired of John McCain. Is that not so much the case, do you think, with people in Arizona who will actually be able to vote for him? Well, one thing I will say about Kelly is I, I need to give her credit. Uh, she, she will run a very strong campaign, I believe. And as a, she's actually a West Virginian. She was born in Fairmont, and she went to the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine. There you go. Um, she, you know, so she, I have that tie to her, but, but I, I, I do believe that, that she has a chance. Uh, I believe that her her resume, her background, her experience in the state senate, I believe all of those things might add up to, to giving her a fair shot. Um, but but at the same time, people said the same thing about John McCain back in 2010. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were upset with him that he lost the presidential election. A lot of people said that he was too moderate. A lot of people said he moved too far to the left after the presidential election. Um, but he managed in one of the strongest conservative Tea Party. I mean, 2010 was the year of the Tea Party. He managed to survive that primary challenge. I see 2016 as being a good year for for conservatives and a good year for Republicans, but I don't see it being the same climate as it was in 2010. A lot of people in 2010 were angry. A lot of people in 2010 were fired up, and I believe that would have been the year to defeat John McCain. But I believe that you know there are people that are tired of John McCain. Uh, there are people who've expressed you know many distasteful comments towards John McCain, <laughs> and, and we won't name names. But but at the same time. Senator McCain is truly a, a trailblazer. Um, there's no denying that he's a war hero. There's no denying that he has been a, uh, a true patriot and a true American. Um, and I, I, I give Kelly credit. You know, I, I say anyone who's willing to offer up their name in candidacy and offer up their ideas to a, to a primary, go for it. Uh, but but it's, it's going to be really interesting to see whether or not she'll actually be able to, to win that contest. Well, Donald Trump may disagree with you on the war hero part, but, uh, <laughs> but actually, let's talk about him if you don't mind. <laughs> Of course, uh, because he's one of my favorite subjects for a myriad of reasons. And um, it's kind of like a love hate thing that I have with him. Going into 2016, Trump is obviously the front runner with most polls right now, getting an impressive 25% in some polls. I'm really not sure how he's doing it. A lot of people are saying he's hurting the party. A lot of people are saying that he. Um, uh, Mark Cuban says that, or, or it wasn't Mark Cuban, it was, uh, uh, 
forgot who said it. Someone said that he, he brings out the dark side of politics. What do you think of Trump in terms of is he hurting the party? Is he hurting the Republicans' chance in 2016? So my standard line <laughs> about the Republican primary in 2016 is mm -hmm. that you have 16 elephants and a monkey all in a room. <laughs> And in my personal opinion, I believe that the that, that Trump candidacy is that monkey. Um, his comments have been distasteful. Yeah. His ideas have been uh, completely off the cuff in the sense that he made comments during his announcement that were, that were just simply not true. Um, you know, I, I believe that, that, that Donald Trump could be the biggest troll of, of modern politics in the sense that, that he's doing this just – to get the reaction that we're giving him, which I really is wish that I was as good as he was <laughs> as a troll. Like I, you know, I trolled Jeb Bush on Twitter. Oh, I'm I see not you all as, the time. I know yeah. I'm not as good as a troll as Donald Trump is with just America. But there, there. Now he's threatening if he doesn't get the nomination, which he's very confident he will get the nomination, um, and we'll see how he does in the debates. You know, the first one being next week. He's threatening a third party run. And the last business person that I remember doing that Ross Perot did that back um, back in the what was that the 90s. Um, how effective do you think that sort of campaign would be with Trump as a third party candidate? I believe that, that Donald Trump entering the 2016 general election as a third party candidate, whether it be with Hillary or Bernie at the top of the Democratic ticket or the, the slew of the other 16 Republicans at the top of, of the Republican ticket, would be a complete disaster for the Republican Party. Mm. Uh, Reince Priebus recently said, you know, Donald's not going to run as a third party candidate, but I wouldn't put it past him. This is the same man that donated money to Hillary Clinton. This mm -hmm. is the same man who's, who's been a Democrat before he was a Republican and a Republican before he was a Democrat. Uh, Donald Trump entering the general election as a third party would essentially, in my opinion, be a, a remix of, of 1992. And it truly could be if Hillary was the Democratic nominee and Jeb was the Republican nominee. Oh. Uh, I, I believe that, that he would detract votes from the Republican Party. I believe that he would uh, force Repub the Republican nominee, whoever it might be, to go into a position that they do not want to be in, that the party does not want to be in. So Donald Trump entering the fray and entering the race in 2016 in the general election as an independent third-party candidate would be absolutely devastating. It, it, would, it would truly ruin, in my personal opinion, in my, my analysis, the chances of the Republican Party uh, for winning. And as people have always said, that could lead to another Clinton being elected without 50 percent of the vote. Right. And, and I would agree with your assessment there. In terms of the debate next week, which um, I'm trying to make to where I can actually watch it, um, <laughs> Do you think Trump will bring his own gold-plated podium to the debate, or do you think he'll stick with the standard one? I don't know about him physically bringing his own podium. Well, I no, he wouldn't bring it, past it out. He, he would have his people <laughs> bring it out, but I, I just imagine a Trump podium being there. You know, I'm, I'm excited to see him come into the debate on an escalator again. I think that'll be uh, interesting to see if he does that. No, I, I, don't, I don't know, you know what Donald Trump's up to with the debate. I think that, that he's going to be himself. And uh, if we know anything about that, it's going to include some colorful comments, some sure. distasteful attacks, and a lot of bragging about how rich he is. I always loved during his announcement when, he's, when he was talking. You know, everyone said Mitt Romney was too rich to be president. He right. was worth too much. Donald Trump comes out in his announcement and says, I'm richer than Mitt Romney was. You know, I mean, just a complete, you know, by change from by a lot. Yeah, he, he made a point that he owns a store on Fifth Avenue in New York that's worth <laughs> more than Mitt Romney is, is, is worth altogether, yeah. total assets. 
So I, I think Donald Trump um, is going to be himself. And if we know anything about that, like I said, it's, it's going to be an interesting debate in Cleveland. At 9 p.m. that night, I, I think what we're going to see is a lot of Donald Trump, not a lot of the other nine, and, and, and a lot of candidates getting really frustrated with the fact that it's, it's all going to be centering around him. And that's because he's been, he's been driving the day on almost every single news network, whether right. it's MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, BBC, wherever it's at, presidential politics is boiling down to Donald Trump. And, and that has caused a lot of problems for Republicans who, I believe, personally have credible campaigns. And, and we might disagree on this, but I believe Jeb Bush has a credible campaign, Marco Rubio, Scott Walker. All of these guys have credible campaigns, and, and Donald Trump is simply taking out the oxygen from the room and leaving them in a very difficult spot where they can't raise the money they need to raise, they can't get the airtime they need to get, and, and essentially, um, it's, it's, it's foiling their efforts. Well, yeah, their campaigns are certainly more credible than, than his. I, I think it's, I, I don't know, the, the, the main thing is, is people are saying that he's just doing it for, um, for more exposure. I feel like he can get exposure all sorts of ways. But if, if you're a candidate, and God bless the, the moderators who are going to be moderating this debate next week, because they're going to have to deal with, I think, multiple breaches in the campaign or the, uh, the, the debate guidelines and, and the, the things that all the candidates agree to. But if you're a candidate in this debate and you know that if you go after the Donald, you're going to have possibly vile comments said about you, what would your strategy be in the debates? How do you attack him without getting attacked much worse? Quite frankly, if I was a candidate for the Republican nomination and I was on stage with Donald Trump, I would have a difficult time developing any sort of strategy. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe that, that one thing that the Republicans, the nine of them collectively could do is try to mitigate his airtime, uh, try to make sure that they're given their fair time and that they're not really you know, thrown off by his comments because they are going to be there. So, so if I'm a Republican and I'm on stage with Donald Trump, I'm going to make a cons conceited effort to, to make sure I stay on message to make sure I'm not distracted. I, honestly, I wouldn't. if I was a Republican candidate, I wouldn't pay him any attention. I would acknowledge that he was there, but I wouldn't let that be the center of the conversation. Hmm. Now, uh, let's just let's turn the page. I'm tired of talking about Donald Trump. <laughs> Although, I, I, had a, I had a question. Well, I'll go ahead and ask it real quick, sure. and then we'll be done. Trump said that he would tap Oprah as VP. Thoughts? He also said that he'd want Sarah Palin to serve in his cabinet. I mean, this is just <laughs> this is just how serious his campaign is. <laughs> Would he, he really has these deep thoughts. Oh, he does, doesn't he? And I bet he's he's thinking of all of them as he sits on the top floor of Trump Tower looking down on the rest of New York City. Right. Donald Trump saying he wants Oprah as his vice president is pure media hype and buzz. Mm -hmm. He's trying to appeal to the person that reads the tabloids mm -hmm. or the person that just glimpses at, 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 at headlines. Um Oprah's not going to be Donald Trump's vice president, nor do I believe Oprah would agree to be Donald Trump's vice president. Uh, no. Uh, but the seriousness of that is the same seriousness of, of him saying he wants Sarah Palin to be in his cabinet. Or that he I wants if, to be president. Or that he wants, exactly, or that he wants to be president. So, so I, I think that, that uh, a Trump Winfrey ticket, although it's probably you know, one of the Donald's biggest fantasies in trying to win the general election, which he says he's going to win anyway by 50 points, I believe that that's just simply doc talk, and there's nothing more to that than just trying to generate some headlines and some buzz for the campaign. Well, it should be good. So finally, turning the page, um, what I ask you about just kind of some offbeat questions. I've been asking a lot of people these, and, and first is, out of all the presidents, who's your number one? 
Oh, that's that's a really that's a really t- good question. It's tough. There 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 are honestly a number uh, of good presidents. Um, you know, the conventional wisdom would say Ronald Reagan, or uh, you know, if you're you're on the other side, you'd say FDR. But I'm going to have to go with the latter's relative and say that my favorite president of all time is Theodore Roosevelt. Um, I had the chance when I was in D.C. to visit uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's Island, which is a, a beautiful area in Washington, D.C., nestled right in the heart of the Potomac River. Um, and, and there what I saw uh, was a man who, who believed in this country. And he not only believed in, in the economy, in our military, in our values, and what we stand on, but he also believed in, in simple ideas of conservation, of making sure that we protect our natural resources, we protect our environment, uh, different things like that. And for me, what he prov- provided was pragmatic leadership. And it's something that, that we, don't, we don't have much nowadays in politics. You hear people talk about you know, d- these different things and these different ideas and all this that and the other and these crazy ideas. But, but what I believe Theodore Roosevelt brought to the table were, were common sense, pragmatic uh, uh, approaches to solving problems. The one thing that I remember... Uh, vividly from my time being on Theodore Roosevelt's Island was the four pillars that's, that surrounded him. There's this beautiful statue in this beautiful park, and the four pillars were manhood, nature, youth, and the state. And those were the three things, or the four things rather, that Theodore Roosevelt believed in. He believed in our country. He believed in our government. He believed in our, our founding principles and our ideals and, and our virtues. But he also believed in, in manhood. You know, uh, he believed in man's ideals. He believed that if we dare to do big things and we're courageous and we're noble, we'll, we'll, we'll exceed the joy of life and we'll serve the duty of life. And he also believed in our young people. Uh, he believed that, that, that young people are what truly drive America. And if we can you know, foster the next generation of hardworking and self-determined and independent and intelligent young people, we'll create a stronger country. And finally, nature. He believed that one of our country's greatest assets was our, our, our natural resources and our natural beauty. And, and coming from West Virginia, I see that every single day. A lot of people talk about out in L.A. or in, in, in New York or Boston about oh, how my commute's just on an interstate with all these buildings. Whenever I go somewhere in West Virginia, it's, it's driving those country roads. It's seeing those mountains. It's seeing the hills and trees and, and the beauty that my state has to provide. So, so I would say that my favorite president of all time would have to be Theodore Roosevelt. And what really cemented my belief in that was traveling to Theodore Roosevelt Island and, and, and seeing you know, that, that work of art that was his, his four pillars of, of what he stood on and what he stood for. Now, in terms of pragmatic leadership, I think that's so important. And you talk about qualities that a president should have. I don't know if you know about uh, Taylor Swift's beef with Apple, Apple Music. I'm not familiar, okay. but I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Essentially, they weren't going to pay artists for the three-month trial that people can get for Apple Music. She threatened to take her music off. She threatened because she was this big advocate for paying artists for whenever their songs are streamed. Now, because of that, a lot of people have said that she should take on a whole number of issues since she seems to be a good, as you would say, pragmatic leader. I'm sure you agree. Do you think someone like Taylor Swift, and this is a stupid question, but I'll ask it anyways, do you think Taylor Swift would make a decent commander-in-chief, or is that just something in my mind? Well, I think if there was a international crisis, the one, the one thing that she would have is she'd have the ability to shake it off, as she likes to say. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if Taylor Swift would be a good president. 
uh, I could see her maybe fitting in, in well at, you know, Secretary of Education or maybe being in Congress or, or working uh, in the Senate. I don't necessarily know if she's presidential material, if she's cut out for that, but maybe if she can write a song about the presidency, that, that'll really catapult her to the top. That's all she has to do. I think so. The, and this is the perfect time to do it. She's on top of her game and uh, the election's coming up. Now She's at her prime. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, Hillary Clinton has... Um, uh, it's almost a hobby now of like deleting emails and evidence and things like that. Have you heard of Tom Brady and this whole deflate gate? Now he said that he's never sent emails about it or text messages or anything like that. I have, I have deflate gate yeah. is, has been something that has dominated every single morning news briefing that I've had. Oh, it's a national uh, news <laughs> issue. It, oh, it is. It is. Do you, do you uh, think he is the next Hillary Clinton just because of the, his hobby for deleting things supposedly? One thing I will say is they always say every season is Tom Brady's to lose, and to <laughs> a, a lot of our pleasure, he loses. Um, so, so, so maybe, maybe he is. One thing I will say um, on, on a more serious note surrounding Hillary Clinton's emails is if she did in fact send classif- if she did send classified confidential government documents on her server, that is a clear federal offense, and, and that, that does need to be made an issue of. Right. Um, a lot of people say, well, you know, she's, she's clean, she didn't do anything, this, that, and the other. It's not true. If they can find evidence that she sent those documents on her personal server, then that needs to be an issue. And as Donald Trump says, I agree with him on this, and a lot of people have been talking about it, that is criminal. And that definitely deserves punishment and retribution in the sense that she did, uh, you know, breach, you know, a whole slew of laws pertaining to government documents and classified information. Back to Tom Brady. We've got to find out who who did that. I agree. Uh, we've got to figure out who deflated those footballs. Was it Tom? Uh, was it Belichick? Was it you know who was it? Was it the owner? I don't know. Was it the referees? Who paid who? Someone has to uh, be held accountable here, Blake. You know what? I think that that Jason Chaffetz and the oversight committee in the House of Representatives should should bring him in for a trial and, and, and get to the bottom of it. Why not? If we had congressional hearings about steroid use, why would we not have congressional hearings about deflated balls? I think that you know. <laughs> I think it's a legitimate claim. Yeah, why aren't we bringing in Tom Brady? Why aren't we bringing in Belichick? I think he'd probably show up in a sweatshirt because he wears it 365 <laughs> days a year. Right. But yeah, but why aren't we bringing these people in? we got to get to the bottom of it. Well, we'll tweet the, the episode of, uh, or the link to this episode to uh, congressional leaders, and, and hopefully that'll inspire them to take action on this very vital issue. Well, Blake, I want to thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show this week, for, for taking some of my... Uh, uneducated dumb questions but thank you for taking them anyways tell people where they could find you online if they want to connect with you i have a number of ways i'll, I'll give out my email address i won't give out my cell phone number like donald trump did to lindsey graham because yeah, then i'll have to up. i'll have to throw my new iphone 5 against the wall um <laughs> i'll give out my email address it's blake humphrey at comcast.net or you can connect with me on twitter at blake humphrey underscore and i'm also on facebook and instagram blake humphrey um, but I, I really do uh, hope that if, if your listeners get one thing out of this, it's that you can always find a solution if you have a will. And if you have a will, you're going to go far. Absolutely. Blake, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. Thank you again to Blake for being my guest on this week's show. Make sure you subscribe to this program on iTunes so you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, subscribe to Second Look with Benjamin Green and the Matt Dallas Show. Remember, they're all in one place now. Thank you for listening to this week's show. We'll see you again here next week. Thank you.